University of California Television presents this podcast of A Natural History of Chicano Literature, a performance lecture by Juan Felipe Herrera. This program was recorded at UC Riverside in July 2005. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. I'm Juan Felipe Herrera, and I'm a professor of creative writing here in the Department of Creative Writing. Uh, at UCR, and I'm the Tomás Rivera Endowed Chair, which is a very exciting uh, experience for me to, uh, to represent in many ways uh, Tomás Rivera, uh, his work, his writing, his vision, his spirit, and to share it with communities across the world. Uh, from here, we're kind of beginning the voyage from here, from this beautiful class in theater and Chicano poetry as well, all the way to uh, Berlin this September. I'll be going to Berlin, imagine, to Germany, and uh, representing Tomás Rivera's uh, vision uh, and my writing and working with children in Berlin and, and high schoolers and meeting around 150 poets from around the world. And I've always dreamed of that. That has always been the Chicano dream, uh, the Chicana dream, the, the literary vision uh, to go beyond borders, to, to, break, to break through those fronteras and those lines and wires and, and border walls that we have uh, experienced throughout our lives and which define us in many ways and which we resist and, and transform in order to redefine ourselves. So that's the, um, that's the feeling. That's the feeling for me. And we were just talking a while ago about Floricanto, and you, and you mentioned Floricanto. And it's such a crazy, wild, interesting concept that Talurista, a uh, Chicano poet uh, from San Diego, where I happened to be living in a beat-up old apartment building that my father found because I was in San Francisco with my mom. Uh, during the um, uh, early 60s. And when I walked into San Diego again, because I had been there in, as a kid, uh, in uh, Logan Heights Barrio, which was a wild moment, pan panaderias and, and, uh, and altar boys, and uh, guys with puffy jackets with skulls and cats, los gatos, los gatos de la Logan, for example. And they were cool, and beautiful jackets. I fell in love with the designs. And they kind of greased their hair back really fun, and, and they coiled their hair, and it, it popped down like a bed spring, like this. <laughs> you had to walk slow because it would, you know, really pop back and forth. Like this. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, there I was in San Diego and on 11th Street downtown. It's like a desert because you know when you live in the barrio, it's it's kind of tough, but we get used to it, and it's lovely also. There's many lives and and many um, people crossing through there. It's like our depot depot of our lives across generations, Logan Heights in San Diego in this case. And, uh, we, but we ended up moving downtown, San Diego. And that's like, you know, downtown. It's like, you know, downtown. It's beyond the wall. It's beyond the borderline in a sense. And it's like we were hamburger stands and beat up used stores and um, used bookstores and uh, restaurants, um, many of them, and grocery stores in English. As opposed to Las Cuatro Milpas in Logan, you'd have um, uh, uh, Safeway or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like that. So I, uh, I, um, I was there. And across the, my little apartment that my father found, painted gray, color de piedra, color of stone, facing this messenger service of bicycles of men on wheels, two wheels, to send messages across the city, which was odd, because we would just walk across the street in Logan. And there was this, uh, this new cottage, set of cottages. And one day, 
Somebody knocked at my door, apartment number five. And I opened it, you know. And uh, it was this, this guy, this, this kind of cool, short guy with frizzy hair and big eyes, like, like you know, like uh, extraterrestrial. <laughs> and very, you know, very serious, you know, very serious. You know, he could have been 75, but he was like 15. Very serious. Uh, well, do you have any paper? I go, sure, I got some paper, sure. You know, like blue line for homework? Like that? Yes, paper. I need paper. Oh, okay, you know, just, I'll be right back. <laughs> so I went to my, my one-bedroom house. Uh, it was one room for everything, kitchen, you know, everything was in one room. My father in the corner, my mom over here, throwing tortillas up in the air. <laughs> and you know, all the saints in the world were, you know, scattered around there, and La Llorona was hovering by the chandeliers. <laughs> you know, the whole world was right there. I'll be right back, okay. Um, uh, what's your name? Beto. Beto uh, Urista Heredia from Acapulco. And now I'm here. Okay, I'll be, I'll be right there. Hold on, okay? It's a long name. And then I, <laughs> so I got him the paper. And it turned out to be a, a guy that became a Lurista, um, and who turned out to be the writer of this book, Floricanto, that turned out to be the metaphor and the root uh, term for a whole new system of knowledge that, uh, that spread out throughout the Southwest and got picked up by everybody, especially people that were, all of us, that, that got excited about who we were and, and where we were going and who our family was and where we came from. So it was like a, a cool move he made. But it's, and it's interesting that, um, that we became friends uh, regarding a piece of paper because that was going to define our lives forever. Papel, imagine papel, you know. Uh, it wasn't a boxing glove and it wasn't a skate. It, uh, it wasn't an engineering degree or formula for algebra it, uh, or a can of Budweiser. It was a, just a piece of blank paper. Imagine. And I was in seventh grade. Yeah, okay. Uh, there you go. Uh, where do you live? Across. Across from you. Haven't you seen things? Open your eyes. <laughs> He's a very serious guy. And uh, he was a public speaker in, in uh, sixth grade. He won medals in, in La Secundaria in, um, in Tijuana. I could tell you more about Aludista. So he, uh, he wrote this book. It was like a bomb, like a nuclear bomb. And it exploded. And all of a sudden, we were all writing about Aslan and about Mexico and about Quetzalcoatl and about Huitzilopochtli and about the sun and about the earth and, and Quatlique and about uh, colonialism and about change and about revolution and about brambores and about marching down the street and about los mariachis and los harapes, and about el barrio, and about our lives. Imagine how powerful that was at that moment. So I thought I'd bring you some books. And uh, all these books represent the same thing, you know. They all represent the same thing, if I can show them to you, because, you know, they, they're not too big, but that's what we all do, you know. It's all about um, uh, saying something and speaking up. And put it together. You don't have to wait for, uh, for the machine to produce what you have to say. The factory, the, the publisher, the interpreter, the agent, the conduit, the broker. You can do it uh, in your own terms. As uh, Jose Montoya would say, uh, in our own terms. You know, in your own terms. In our own terms. You know, that's the way Montoya would say it. You know? Hardcore uh, 
post-pachuco. In our own terms, Juan Felipe. This is going to be in our own terms. I said, okay, okay, T-E-R-M, I got it, you know. <laughs> in our own terms. And it kind of sounded really cool because we had never used those words before. You know, we used to say, empanadas, you know, words like that. And he said, in our own terms. I go, wow, terms. It's like a linguistic notion. It's like thinking about language, right? Terms. A term is a figure and a linguistic system. It's a term. There's categories, terms, figures, and on and on. So it was a very abstract statement. So this was, uh, this was later. It's Francisco Alarcón. You probably know about Francisco. It's called Loma Prieta. And this is called a chapbook. And in Mexico, you probably call it a, um, a pancarta. When we went to Mexico City, we wanted to go reach out and kind of connect with, kind of connect with our people, as, as we always want to do, and cross the line again and go across this borderline uh, between language and knowledge and uh, families. So we wanted to, I wanted to visit my writing families in Mexico City, which would be people like yourselves, but in Mexico City. And they were in overalls. They were in overalls. The poets at that time, 19, this is 1978. This is a little later, I think. When we went over there, Francisco and I, they were wearing overalls, long hair, you know, down to the knees, and overalls. The Chicano, the Mexican DF poets. Arturo Villafuerte. Oh, okay, Arturo, how you doing? Yeah, cool. Hey, I like your overalls. And, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, we, were, we met at Bellas Artes, an Instituto de Bellas Artes, right downtown Mexico City in La Alameda. You know, it's kind of sinking into the water a little bit, sinking into the earth. And uh, very, uh, it's very ancient. There's a lot of stories there. The, the murals of Diego Rivera are up there. The murals of Orozco, you know, it's just breathing on, breathing on you, you know. <gasps> History is breathing on you. Juan <gasps> Felipe. <gasps> I'm your history. <gasps> very heavy stuff, you know. All kinds of blades and swords and people getting chained and breaking through stone and Cuauhtémoc rushing through the air. Hey, Cuauhtémoc, how you doing? And um, so it was Francisco and I. And what happened in, uh, a little later, in the late 80s, an uh, earthquake shook Santa Cruz where Francisco was going to school. So he wrote this chapel called Loma Prieta about that earthquake. But there's much more to say about all those guys in Mexico City. And I, one of the people I met was uh, Elias Nandino. He was, in his late eight, he was in his 80s, Elias Nandino. And Elias Nandino was, is one of the poets of the Contemporáneos, which is a movement of poetry and literature in Mexico. Big old movement. It's like the Chicano movement, a literary movement. Los Contemporáneos did the same thing, but much earlier. And they were very different. And they, had, they did a lot of things with language. And one of the members was Elias Nandino, who wrote many songs that became famous throughout Mexico. You know, popular songs. Great writer, songwriter, and poet. But I met him uh, in his 80s, beyond the, these years. And it was great to meet him. He was hanging out at Bellas Artes as well with the guys, the new poets like yourselves, at La Torre Metropolitana, one of the very tallest buildings in Mexico City. He's kind of shaking like this, you know, because it was so high. And uh, we was hanging out with the guys that worked uh, in the sem uh, Semanario de Bellas Artes, which is a... Um, a literary supplement, like a newspaper that goes in the Excelsior magazine. It's like having the uh, Press Enterprise, and, and you and I would have maybe four sheets every week that'd be ours on our own terms in the Press Enterprise. And you'd have your poetry and your photography and your short stories. So that's the same thing that these young people were doing, these poets who worked with 
Elias Nandini. And I met him, and we met him. We shook hands. And uh, he wanted to do things. He was excited about coming to California and meeting the new writers and uh, inviting us to go back to uh, DF and hang out with him at, at, in his 80s. And, and these are his, uh, some of his poems. And I'm, I'm, and I'm amazed that these, these poems have not been translated into English. Not that they have to be, but you figure somebody who's worked that hard and is that important uh, would be translated into many languages. So this is a little project for you guys, okay? It's a little project for you. For this class, here's your project. Why don't we translate Elias Nandino, a, f a f famous, who passed away a few years ago, a Mexican poet, a member of Los Contemporaneos, and we can translate his sonnets. This will be a brand new project, never has been done. And a lot of you can help each other with some Spanish and get a little dictionary just to you know, make sure you got, got things going right. And you could do that. Whew, there it is. Then, of course, you know, there's Victor Martinez, you know. And, uh, you know, Victor's from Fresno, and he came to San Francisco um, in the uh, late 70s. Where, and I had just come back because I used to be there as a kid. I used to roam around all San Francisco with all my friends, you know, stealing keychains and uh, goofing around and doing catechism and helping my uncle Roberto uh, make Mexican candy. Well, we basically burned our hands. That was the Mexican candy we had because you have to use a hot plate. You know, dulce de coco, especially. And my uncle Roberto Quintana invented the first tortilla machine. I was telling uh, uh, your professor that uh, my uncle Roberto Quintana in the mid-50s invented the first tortilla machine. It looks like a dragon made out of steel. It spit tortillas out one end. And then a big old tortilla come flying out. That was great, you know. He should have patented it, you know. Millionaires by now. Uh, so at the same, the same town in San Francisco, Victor came from Fresno and from the same kind of family I'm from, you know, farm worker family, campesinos. And he ended up in, in big, the big city in San Francisco, San Pancho. And uh, there he was, and there I was. And I had come back uh, from, uh, uh, I was at Stanford at that time. And uh, when people would ask, uh, social workers would ask my mother, because we were on welfare forever, and where's your son? Uh, where is he? Oh, man, he's at Stanford. I said, what? <laughs> it's like when I was in high school, the social worker came over, and they, they, they're supposed to come over and check to see if you're committing a crime. You know, we, we still have that problem. You know, people look at Chicanos today. Are they committing crimes? <laughs> so uh, the social worker came over. I was in high school, and I had just taken this really cool philosophy class. So I had all kinds of books, you know. And I, I was reading at that time, uh, The World is Will and Idea by Schopenhauer. Really powerful book, you know. And the social worker comes in. Oh, uh, yes, uh, Mrs. Herrera. Uh, and she was looking around to see who was living there, you know, check, making little check marks, you know, because only three people were, two people were supposed to be there, me and my mom. My father would travel a lot, and my father, three people. And she would say, oh, oh, oh uh, yes, John. Uh, oh, what are you reading there, by the way? Uh, I said, oh, uh, I'm reading uh, The World is Will and Idea by Schopenhauer. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> So there I was in San Francisco. I had come back to San Francisco, and I decided, I was at Stanford, and I decided to conquer the city, you know. You know, the way poets get, you know how we get. We kind of inflate ourselves. Let's go conquer San Francisco, okay? Okay, Jose, Maria, let's go conquer San Francisco. It's ours, man. Let's take it over, okay? You got your poems, I got my poems. You ready? Let's go. Uh, do, you, do, you have, do you have any gas? And then we, we put gas in the car, and we go and knock on all the doors. Uh, is there a poetry reading here tonight? 
yeah, my name is Juan Felipe, this is Francisco Alarcón, and this is uh, Bobby Paramo, and this is um, uh, Victor Martinez. We're ready, man. We got our poems. We're ready to go. When's your reading? Uh, what time? What day? I'm ready, man. I got my poems right here. Bilingual. Fire. Aslan. I'm ready, man. Save the people. Change. Uh, no, uh, we don't have any poems, poetry readings anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let me go to the next place. And we kind of did that, though. It was the right moment, 1978. Victor was a very meticulous writer. I said, Victor, what are you doing? I'm working on my manuscript, Juan Felipe. I'm working on my manuscript. I said, well, last week you had 400 pages. Now you only got 50. What's happening? I'm editing, man. It's got, you got to edit, man. You got to revise. You got to get those terms right, the language, you know, the music, uh, the punctuation, the rhythm, the meaning, the significance, the semantics. Juan Felipe, wake up. Because <laughs> my kind of writing is I just write, and that's it. I go, brrr, I'm done. Next, I'm done. Just put my hand on anything, you know. There it is. You know, let my hand write by itself while I'm, you know. Yeah, that's how I do it. He goes, Juan Felipe, what are you doing? Don't send your stuff out, you know. But if it's wrong, you know, well, it has all kinds of mistakes. It's going to be printed already. I go, hey, it's out, baby. It's out. What about you? Look at you. It's out. So that was my kind of attitude, you know. And then one day I came by and he says, you know what? After years, after years, it was like... 10 years, 15 years later, he's still chopping it down. I go, Victor, what are you doing? When are you going to send something out, man? He goes, uh, well, I finally got a little manuscript together, and it's called A Parrot in the Oven. I said, all right, huh? oh, good, good. About time, man. And, uh, and then he got the National Book Award. First time ever. It's one of the highest awards you can get. It's like getting, you know, Cuauhtémoc coming out of the earth and Pancho Villa strolling out of the closet. <laughs> Frida Kahlo popping out of your car, you know, <laughs> driving a Mustang around on Canyon Crest. Hey, it was Frida Kahlo. So that's what this, this is what, that's what this prize is like. And all of a sudden, I turned off the TV, and it goes, and now, ladies and gentlemen, announcing the National Book Awards. Wow. And there's these guys wearing tuxedos, and, you know, really formal, and that Waldorf Astoria in New York City, you know, we just like to even pronounce it. That was as far as we got. Waldorf. <laughs> Astoria. Hey, man, sounds like Spanish, man. That's ours, man. That's Aslan, Astoria. <laughs> but that's as far as we got. And there he was. There was Victor. He was in line. For an, he was nominated to get the National Book Award. Only, only four people out of the United States got that far. Four finalists. Whew, and only one was going to get the award. And young adult uh, novels, which is the first time they did this. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, the winner is Victor Martinez. Wow. I said to myself, no, what? now I understand why he worked on his writing so much. So he's very meticulous. And this is Victor. This is his book. Parrot in the Oven. You've got to read this. It's amazing. It's tough. It'll brutalize you. You won't believe how honest you can be in your writing. That's what he, he can show, show us here. He's just brutally honest about our experience as um, Chicanos and Chicanas in the United States. I guess I'm just going through some, some things I wanted to show you. This is different. This is different. This didn't get anywhere. This one didn't get anywhere. It's another chapbook, another pancarta, written for Itzolin Garcia. And it's written by uh, Truong Tran, a poet. Um, in San Francisco. 
And what's, what's, what's beautiful about it is that here's what a, a poet, Truong Tran, that writes this uh, chapbook and dedicates it to Itzolin Garcia. And Itzolin Garcia uh, was a young man from, from uh, Austin, uh, Austin, Texas, whose father is uh, uh, Cecilio Garcia Camario, a great Chicano poet. And Itzolin was always torn. He used to call me and email me. I, d I never met him. He was always torn. He would say, Juan Felipe, I want to be a poet, but maybe I should get a PhD. But I want to be a poet, but maybe I should get a PhD. I want to be a poet, but maybe I should get a PhD. So he got in a PhD program at Stanford. And then, like one year later, committed suicide. He wanted to be a poet. So this little, little blue book is for him. And only you and I and maybe 20 other people know it, know it because it's a handmade book and costs money to make them. But you can do that too. You can dedicate something to someone and, and speak for them and, and bring them back and share their story and illuminate others who are caught between uh, their true, authentic self and something that's being impose, imposed upon them and how we struggle with those questions, how we're pulled by by expectations of others and by the mainstream and how we actually have a, a fire burning inside of us that sometimes we don't listen to. And it's good to listen to it. It's very good to listen to it. When I was hanging out in 1974 in northern New Mexico, I had $20. I was in Berkeley. I had a really cool car, a Rambler, another Rambler, station wagon but without windows on the side. Can you imagine? And I had 20 bucks, yeah, a t-shirt and jeans, that's it, imagine. I said, I want to go to New Mexico. I got some money, I got a lot of money, $20, woo! Gas tank's full, I'm ready to roll. Nuevo Mexico, here I come. El Norte de Nuevo Mexico, I'm coming. Away we go. And I just drove that thing, you know, Chicano style, never stop. You know, there's no motels, you know, you don't, never been to a motel anyway. I hit the Arizona desert. I think I better, I think I better stop, cool the car off. At least that, you know. Okay. And I, I, I got off in the middle of the night in the desert in Arizona, pitch black. And I, I said, I want to air out the engine, you know. That's about as much I know about mechanics, you know. Air it out. <laughs> That's my, you know, you know, riders, we don't know anything about cars usually. But sometimes we do, but I don't know anything. So I want to air it out. So I popped open the hood. And guess what I saw? The engine was so hot, it looked like a big, giant red tarantula. It looked like a red tarantula, like a giant red tarantula. With, you know, all the manifold pipes were all red, blazing red. And I let it cool down for like 10 minutes, because, you know, yeah, you got the Chicano fever, you can't stop. So I got back in the car, and I had like a six, uh, a little tiny miniature uh, orange juice. Because, you know, you're always in a rush, you're always burning, you can't stop for anything, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go. That's how I was. So I stopped, you know, a little 7-Eleven, oh, all right, give me an apple, I'll take a Twinkie, give me that orange juice, got back in the car. And uh, that was my lunch, dinner, breakfast, in between merienda, everything. So I was freezing, that's why I had to go too, because I stopped, because I had no windows, I was freezing. So I had to drive. And then in the daytime, the sun came out and it just was so hot, because I hit Navajo country. 
was different, you know. It was very abstract, like a Dali painting. The cliffs were dripping and the clouds were talking and the, the planes were undulating and there were people leaning at 45 degree angles and 90 degree angles and 15 degree angles hitchhiking on the road, Navajo peoples. Uh, so I'd stop and pick them up, all right, let's go. Hey, hold on, young man, you're going too fast. And I kept on going. So when I finally got to northern New Mexico, this half of my, uh, my body was charred. It was, it was Aztec. This was Aztec. <laughs> I, I was Aztec. And the, and the steering wheel was like a, was like a melted down donut. It was all, all lopsided because of the heat. And this side, I was like, you know, from Galicia or something. I was like, you know, from Madrid, you know, this, this side, you know. It was a true mestizo at that point. And then I finally made it to uh, New Mexico, where I met Reginaldo Cantu, living in a circular adobe house. Wow, I said, man, hey, hey, Reggie. It's cool pad, man. Like a tortilla. It's like living inside a tortilla. I said, all right, this is Aslan. This is it. This is, this is it, man. This is home. It was like a circular tortilla. It was big. It was beautiful. Made out of adobe, inside and outside. And it had a natural fireplace. And tortillas smelled great. Sweet corn, yellow corn, blue corn, red corn. Imagine. I was only used to white corn. I mean, yellow corn, you know, commercial corn, Safeway corn, uh, welfare corn. Right? When you go to the cheese line, you get a little can of cream corn. That's what I was used to. <laughs> so there I was. And he had just come out with this book. And I thought it had the worst title in the world, but now it sounds really cool. Being a Thing in Drunken Time. I go, man, you got to be kidding, Reggie. <laughs> Epitaphs and echoes from Taos and Vulture Mountain. So I was in Taos. That's where I was. And uh, he ended up in the film uh, called uh, The Milagro Beanfield War, produced by Moctezuma Esparza and uh, Robert Redford. You can see him come alive in that film. So I stayed at his pad, and he shared this with me. So I guess what I'm saying is that um, poetry is uh, very organic. Chicano poetry is very organic. It's, it's related to, to the land and to families and to friends and to moments that we mark in time and, and with ink and on paper and share paper and come up with things and discover things and write about them and, and then they grow and then they grow and we travel and aquí te va, Itzolín Garcia, being a thing in drunken time, Elias Nandino. It's beautiful. It's, this is not even important anymore. It's the people and the land and the moment that created all this and the people themselves and the poetry themselves. This is from San Francisco, this guy uh, shooting up on his leg. Different realities, different issues, you know. And uh, chapbook, From My Heart, Revolution, George Tirado, early 80s. Then I went to Bisbee. Oh, you guys got to go to Bisbee, Southern Arizona. You got to go there. It's like only 10 miles from, from, from Chihuahua. So you're really cool there, you know. You, it, and the city is on a 45-degree slant. It's like an old mining town, Bisbee, Arizona. And they have a poetry festival there every year in the summer. You can fill out nopales as you're walking through you. Nopales grab you. And, and, and uh, I met Colleen Estrada, who's a poet. And here's her chapbook. You see what I'm saying about making your own uh, literature in your own terms, like Jose Montoya said? In your own terms, Juan Felipe. In our own terms. And there she is with her baby. It's a very different way of writing. Uh, she's deaf. Uh, she writes 
and she signs her poetry. And she practices yoga. And it says who she is. And that's, that's it. That's the beauty right there. So what can I tell you? What can I tell you? Of course, I can tell you about Yavas Karnal. Yavas Karnal. It's a great phrase. I recommend it. You know, <laughs> Yavas, it means you're, you're, you're on, right? It means right on. You go, oh, you're going to the game tonight? Right on. <laughs> or you go, you're going to the game tonight? Yavas, right? Same deal. And Yavas Karnal, you know, you're on, brother. You're on, sister. You got it right, sister. You got it right, brother. Of course. Or you could say, definitely, absolutely, I agree with you. Yeah. And it, <laughs> You know, you could do those two. So there I was living in a Victorian in San Francisco on San Jose Avenue in the mid-80s. And Francisco Alarcón uh, was living upstairs. With Rodrigo Reyes was living upstairs. Uh, Yolanda Lopez, a muralist, Chicana muralist, was living upstairs. Rene Ñañez, a Chicano experimental artist, was living upstairs. And I was living downstairs. And, and Margarita Luna Robles, we were both living downstairs together. And across from, this, from us was this uh, Samoan family. So we were a big old happy tribe. And that's when Francisco and Rodrigo and Juan Pablo Gutierrez put this book together. And this is the first time in this little chapbook también that uh, Chicano gay poets put their work together and get it published. And that's great. And that was historic. And it was a beautiful moment. And here it is. One of the last copies. Collector's item. And it's great to see it. Because not everybody is still, uh, is still living that's in this book. Uh, Rodrigo died of AIDS uh, a decade later. Uh, so, so you see, this thing that's called Chicano poetry has a lot of um, life to it and meaning to it and love to it and uh, spirit to it and uh, vision to it and history to it. It's just that we just don't see it necessarily every day or hear it necessarily every day or get outside of our one track or multi or almost multi-track world but predefined and we don't see it. But it's there and it has been here and it continues to be here, for example, with this very, cla this very uh, same class here. And I just got this from Luis Leal, who was at the Tomas Rivera conference that we organized and came to uh, being uh, last Friday. And Luis Leal is 97 years old. And he's been uh, writing about the history of poetry and Chicano literature all his life. So in other words, he's the one who's been writing about it earliest and is still writing about it more than anybody else in the whole world. Because I don't know too many 97-year-old Chicano literary critics. So he has to be the full source. So he came over and said, hey, Juan Felipe, how you doing? I said, oh, pull that. You know, we're going to give you a Lifetime Achievement Award. I goes, okay, yeah, yeah, carnal. And uh, I want you to look him up. I want you to look up Luis Leal. What a great pioneer. And he was here. And he gave, he gave this to me in a very Mexicano, Chicano way. When I saw him, he, he pulled out a couple of books and gave them to me, like an offering. When you visit someone's house, right, you take a little something. And they offer you a little something. Same thing with all this. That you're that's what this is. A little offering and a little offering. And he gave this to me. And it's, um, it's an essay that he wrote on Alejo Carpentier, a Cuban uh, uh, a fiction writer. So those are some things that I brought for you today to kind of share with you because they, they really 
excite me. And they say so much, and they're in a little corner in my oficina, in my office. But when I pull them out, I, I realize that they contain my life, and the life of many people, and many powerful moments that were documented, that were shared, and that were dreamed, and, and that were given, and that went back into the universe. You get it from the universe, comes through here, and it goes back out, which is very nice. That's the way it is. Of course, there's Oscar Zeta Costa. Oh, Oscar Zeta Costa. Oh, man, Oscar. Oh, he's, he's a Oscar Zeta Costa. Wow, wow, wow. What can I tell you? Oscar Zeta Costa disappeared in 1974, somewhere in Mexico. There's a legend about him. Where did he go? What happened? In 1973, a year before he disappeared, we had our first Floricanto Chicano National Literature Festival at USC, November 13th and 14th. And Oscar Zeta Costa was there, and Tomás Rivera was there. And Alvarista was there, because he organized it. He was a visionary of the Floricanto idea, remember? So Oscar had this book. He was just barely putting it together, and it was almost done. And he read, uh, I believe he read, uh, it's called The Revolt of the Cockroach People. And I think he read chapter 8, or he read chapter 14. And then the chapter is about a young boy who has been uh, suicided by the police in this novel. He's been apprehended and thrown in jail, and somehow he ends up dead in jail. And Oscar Zeta Costa, in this book, his, his main character is a lawyer, which he was a lawyer, and uh, goes, into, goes to investigate the case. Was he really, did he really commit suicide, or did something else happen? So in this chapter, I believe it's chapter 8, um, he's at the autopsy with this other, with the coroner, Coroner Noguchi, who was the, uh, the coroner for, uh, I believe, Marilyn Monroe. And he has this Chicano body on a table. And uh, Oscar, as a lawyer, says, please chop that, snip that. I need that piece of, right there by the, uh, by the cheek. Please take that. I think I see a bruise. And that, and that, and that, and that. And then he kind of stopped. He stopped ordering uh, that examination because it was too late. The body had decomposed too much, and what he was getting wasn't going to be really good evidence. And he realized that at that moment that he couldn't save Robert, which was the name of that young man. He couldn't, he couldn't re-vindicate his life because he couldn't prove anything now anymore. But he wrote about it. Now there's a, see, there's a, he couldn't do it legally, but he did something with the novel. And he ends it like this. Forgive me, Robert, for the sake of the living brown. Forgive me and forgive me and forgive me. I'm no worse off than you. For the, for the rest of my born days, I will suffer the knowledge of your death and your second death and your ashes to my ashes, your dust to my dust. Goodbye, Yese. Viva la raza. So that's uh, Oscar Zeta Costa. He was at the Floricanto Festival, and he said, turn the lights off. I go, wait a minute, Oscar, this is a, this is a Floricanto, man, and this is the first time we come together, and, and, and you know, we've got to tell the people who, what we're doing, and we've got to show them our writing and, and express ourselves, okay? I want the lights off. He's these tall guys, six foot plus, Oscar Zeta, weighs 250 pounds or so. Big guy, big imposing figure. Lawyer, you know, novelist, madman, sane man, 
spiritual man, crazy man, shaman, curandero, writer, poet, all at once. The lights, please. So the lights go down. And that's when he read this piece, this chapter that I just read to you at the Floricanto Festival, 1973, November 13th. And then he disappeared. No one ever found out what happened to him. So I thought I'd show you some journals. Well, uh, we'd like to know what the author's uh, writing materials look like. And uh, we'd like to see the quatrain process and the sonnet and the sestina and how, how the corrido <laughs> gets elaborated and the clear-cut process of uh, iambic chicharron manameter. <laughs> So I do a lot of doodling and a lot of stuff like this to get my ideas out. And I draw things and I draw the book. I draw the book around a thousand times. Only I know what, it, I give it a little title, I draw it, and I use different colors of ink. And I put words all over the place. And I cut images out of newspapers that are kind of funny and strange and I put them in there too. So this is my laboratory in a way. So I encourage you to do something like that too if you like, because some, uh, we need a, as many mediums as possible to express as many realities as possible. And I, I understand that you've been reading and perusing through notebooks of a Chile Verde smuggler. And that comes from the fact that when I was in El Paso hanging out with uh, my wife's family, and my mother's from El Paso, was from El Paso, my father used to cruise out and have dates in El Paso. And that's where we met my mom. Uh, and my uncles used to hang out in Paso. So this is an image of my uncle, my tío Chente, and his bud and his homeboys, and his colleagues, his fellow poets in 1921 or 1922. And it's good for me to see, and I hope you enjoy seeing this, this image, because uh, sometimes our imagination uh, is a little anemic. And we don't really have images of ourselves, of our families across time being artists. We have images of our families at work, images of our families uh, at a wedding maybe, images of our families um, against a wall, <laughs> or we don't have any images at all. Or the ones that we have are just negative and we don't have them, we don't want them for good reasons. But rarely we have images of ourselves and our families as artists. So here's, a, here's one of those images, and that's why I like this. It's like, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix and, and uh, you know, Bob Dylan and pals. So this is my uncle here with his bata. That's a great word, his bathrobe. Bata, not bato, but bata. And uh, he's got these black uh, leather boots on, you know, all the way to his knees. Here's one of his friends down here kneeling down, looking kind of tragic, which is a cool look to have. You know, in high school, that's a look to have. You look tragic. Especially Mexicanos, we have a really tragic thing going. It's really cool, you know. You know, big old trenzas pulling down too hard. Give you a tragic Frida look. <laughs> or the guys, you know, looking like Pedro Hernandez, you know. Eyebrow crooked up here like this, and the eyeball sticking out like it's made out of glass. You know, with a, with a horse behind you, a black horse somewhere, you know, on fire. <laughs> and here's, here's one of his buddies with a skull, you know, with a calavera, you know. Calaveras are cool, you know. We all grew up with Calavera stories, you know, and Muerte stories and Diablo stories. So you might as well go, go for it. 
And here's a guy looking cool, you know, like a really cool guy, you know, with a cigarette and his hair greased back, looking like Rudy Valentino, and a really cool black suit. And uh, he's thinking, you know, cool thoughts. <laughs> cabaret, you know. He uses the word cabaret, cabaret. Vamos al cabaret. Tomamos bacardi. Cabaret bacardi. I used to love that word, Bacardi, as a kid in Tijuana. I used to go to my uncle to go see the bullfights, you know, bloody things, you know, bloody slaughter moments. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, cut the ears off, throw them out to the audience, you know, rub them across your face, you know, <laughs> across your shirt, Alter Boy shirt. You know. It was kind of like a Chicano dialectic, you know. You're, you're at the church, you know, I see, you know, vamos a la iglesia, let's go to church, you know, the Virgen and the Saints, San Jeronimo. Flores, you know, candles, velas. And then you go to Tijuana and go watch bulls get slaughtered. Come on, pull out the heart. Dame el corazón, I want to taste the corazón right now. Dame lo, dame lo. cinco pesos, dame lo. Can I have some popcorn? <laughs> so here's a calavera. It kind of goes with that, you know. So Chicano extremes are beautiful, you know. You go from the devil, calaveras, tripas, corazones, you know, chicharrones, you know, panza. All, all the way to, you know, uh, Notebooks, UCR, you know, um, uh, you know uh, um, um, Mariah Carey, you know. <laughs> so it's a great world of extremes, you know, great world of extremes, you know. Oppression and education, even rhyme, you know. So, so here it is. I put a lot of photos in here because um, they, they, they were my books. The photographs at home that my mother kept, a little album, even though she never used that word, it's too high class. Um, she, uh, she called them Los Pictures. So, <laughs> so she had Los Pictures, and uh, they date way back in time. You know, you've seen, you've seen the photograph of my uh, abuelita Juanita, who I was named after in 1900. This is 2005. This is 1900. 18, 1900, what? In 1900. This is 2005. And she's 17, and she's got a child that's one year old. So my mother would tell me all these stories about everybody in these photographs since I was a kid. Every year. It was like going to, you know, homeroom. You know, eh, Juanito, ¿te acuerdas? Esta es tu abuelita Juanita. And your abuelita Juanita had a little baby. And he didn't survive. He didn't survive. But, you know, she was 17, okay? She was 17. And you're named after her. You, Juanito, Juanito, Juanita, Juanita, Juanita. Okay? Okay, mama. Ah, thank you for my... Chicano writing workshop, thank you. <laughs> so that's my world, you see. That's my world. And um, it's like making a carburetor, you know, in Tijuana. You make it with your own hands. And that's how I created poetry, with my own hands. I only took a workshop when I was, I took it once in high school. And went across, I went all the way from the barrio to the park, Balboa Park, where they had this workshop in creative writing. And I had a poem called Square Moon, which I enjoy because I really funky talk, Square Moon. Luna Cuadrada. And um, I was at the workshop, and the workshop leader said, why is this poem called Square Moon? What's your rationale? I go, oh, man, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, I, so I just stepped out. So from that point on, I just wrote with my own, uh, not necessarily on my own, but because, uh, you know, I had people like Alurista hanging around. And he, you know, he's a heavy guy. Juan Felipe, from this day on, I'm no longer... A Mexicano. What, what was that? What? What? What are you talking about? Man, pass me that peanut butter. Juan Felipe, from this day on, I am 
Hey, pass me that peanut butter, man. Chicano. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, um, your friends and your associates and the people around you and the environment that you live in and the speakers around you, the speakers around you, the communicators around you are the uh, poetry makers. If your mother tells you stories, she's a poetry maker. If your father says stories, he's a poetry maker. If your grandma tells you stories, she's a poetry maker. And that's who forms our, that's who forms our poetics. Anyone I should read? Anyone, any particular piece I should read here? There are different flavors. It's like uh, raspados, you know? There's a sandia, there's limon, there's tepache, tejuino, horchata, jicama, jamaica. Love the victim harder than you love his killer. E velorio. Margarita prays for her 22-year-old brother, Ricky. Run over late night by a full truck next to a 7-Eleven. Sometimes, from a small envelope, she pulls out his broken bones. Or she finds his torn fingers at the bottom of a cup of coffee. Then they kicked him. Then they stabbed him. Then they pierced him front to back with a meat cleaver. I listen to her. I listen to her. See her wringing her own hands like rags 13 years after Ricky's death. Todos vatos took a turn, she says. Had a kick down good time, and then they ran away to get high, click on the boombox, keep on listening. None of them got time. No one said a thing. Tiny barrio killers, hard kings to themselves, hard kings to the young chavalos. Look at how they love their mirrors in their own blood-filled silence. Look at their stiff faces. Don't ask me why they killed him. Don't ask me if they were abused. Don't ask me if they were loaded. Don't ask me about the broken fathers. Don't ask me, camarada. Please, don't ask me. Ask yourself, who are your heroes? Ask yourself, do you know how to love? Walk down down there by your house. The night is wet with victims. Year in, year out. And that was a tough poem to write because we're all victims and we're all killers. And uh, we have to be aware of that. How our lives um, are balanced upon the blood and bones of many people, and how every day our actions affect the lives and deaths of many things, and how our inaction does the same thing. So this poem is 40% or maybe even only 20% accurate, and that's why it's hard to write about those things, uh, about blaming people. You cannot it's impossible to do that because uh, we are ultimately responsible for everything, each one of us. Even though we feel we're over here and they're over there, or we're good and they're, it's their problem, or it's a social issue, or it's a political issue, but we're in the middle of every one of those things. 
This one is called Tia Fernando Nachamuco Abatizapan de Zaragoza. And this one is uh, uh, built on uh, uh, storytelling. You know how our families tell us stories? And that's what I was saying. Every storyteller is a poetry maker in your family. We may not, we may not see them that way. We may think, oh, God, that's the 50th time, Mom, that you tell me that story. But she's a, she's a poetry maker. She's turning you into a poet. And it's going to happen sooner or later. You're going to go, I'm a poet. How did that happen? It's because you had poetry makers whispering in your ear all your life. So here's Tio Fernando, who used to live in an apartment in San Francisco on the second floor of 17th Street above a piano shop. And my mom lived there too. And my tia Tere lived there too. My tia Aurelia lived there too. And I used to go visit him when I was going to Stanford. That's when she used to say, hey, yeah, my son, uh, he's in Stanford. What's that? <laughs> so this is a, a story he used to tell me when I was a, 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 a kid. It's about a... a Atizapan was a little city on the outskirts of Mexico City, by Tlanepantla, by Ciudad Satélite, by uh, far away from Unam, and far away from the city, but not that far. It's a big old city now. It's a big old metropolis. 80 years plus now, lives in apartment number 10. Four TVs, seven radios, 14 wristwatches, same room for the last 15 years. When my Aunt Lela died a year and a half ago, he said he'd go back to La Capital, move into a house with wrought iron windows. He's been paying on it for 23 years. I'm staying here, he tells me. Voy a colectar my social security. Going to become an American citizen. Mi hermano Cruz can take care of la casa. I can always visit him, he says. It's by the airport. Leans back in the cramped easy chair, shivers, because he's wearing all these coats. He doesn't want to put on the, the heater because he's cost a lot of money. So he's saving all the money for this house in Mexico. So he's wearing all these coats. He's shivering. You know, he's, he's really cold. I ripped out the heater. me pongo más sacos. That's how he puts it. Tell me a cuento about the night of the chamuco, tío, I say to him. Puts on his green glasses. He had these green shades on, you know. The Chicano sunglasses, you know, made out of seven of bottles. His hands crooked. He was a laundry worker, so his hands looked like trees. Trabajaba en la lavandería. He's a laundry worker. The Fairmont, James Brown, presenting James Brown. But behind all that, making, washing the savanas and towels was my uncle. His hands all busted. His hands crooked from laundry work. Well, ya te la dije, muchacho, pero okay. One night, it's true, very late at night, I was walking back to my padre's house in Atizapán. A few miles from La Capital. In those days, era puro campo libre. Maguey, rios, files. It was very dark when I heard a ruido. Every time I took a step, it took a step. Every time I walked faster, it moved quickly behind me, right behind me. I didn't want to run back. No way. It got so bad that when I got close to La Tiendita with the light on, I was frozen. El chamuco was right behind my shoes. No quería voltear. So I yelled out to Don Chon in La Tienda, Por favor, Don Chon! Uh. Who's behind me? Please tell me. I took the step, and that chamuco was still there. Even with the viejito watching me, I, I could hear a strange brushing sound like fire, like light, sharp sounds, very light, like a sombra, un espíritu. 
Please, Señor, Don John. Dígame, tell me, por favor. I was frozen now. It was very late. I couldn't, I couldn't move anymore. La noche was all around me except for the tiny light de la tiendita. <sighs> Mira, chamaco, said the viejito. Es una bola de paja. Stuck to your zapatos. <laughs> so it was a ball of hay. He was walking through the fields. He got this big old ball of hay stuck on his shoes. And every time he took a step, he went, It's a chamuco. Yeah. Chamuco stories, I told you. I told you about that. So, you know, in a way, that poem brings back that story that no one else wrote down. So I wrote it down. And that's the beauty of it all. That now my Tio Fernando, you see, now you know my Tio Fernando. Now you know one of his stories. So writing, in a way, is a secret ingredient that bends time. Because time is, you know, A, yay, you're born. Z, bye-bye. La Llorona came. But one thing that can transcend time and space, in a way, is your writing. Because see, now you know his story, and he's still alive. I worry about comedians who call me back to, to back up their old communisms. I worry about teen Chicanas advertising Jehovah at the bakery. Man, I worry about exotic birds learning too much English. I worry about Subcomandante Marcos getting acne under the ski mask. <laughs> I'm telling you, I worry about feminists who want to identify Cubans in the room. I worry about tourists who think maids are natural. I worry about the governor's face muscles. You see him the other day on TV? Man, I worry, about, I worry about writing workshops using hacksaws. I worry about OJ's parenting methods, you know? I worry about drive-bys low on gas, imagine? <laughs> I worry about the high cholesterol levels of mariachis. I mean, you know, you gotta watch it. I worry about little boys who memorize surgical procedures. I worry about black and white panels. Black and white panels. We're gonna have black and white panel. Man, I worry about ethnics who claim four races. I worry about uh, Christmas sales at Macy's. I worry about poets who believe in publishing. Man, I worry about fast foods in prison, most of all. I worry about impatient stop signs. You know, you ever seen them? They go, they go, they go stop, and then, then they go, stop. You know, they, I worry about brain shaving. You know, that's, you gotta watch that. I worry about couples who date. Let's go on a date, Jacinto. What was that, Guadalupe? Did you say date? I worry about uh, trendy transfusions. I worry about kindergarten teachers who, whose clothes match. That doesn't make sense. You really think about it. I worry about uh, the dishwasher's revenge. I worry about the complexion of beans. You've got to study the beans. You study the beans, the complexion changes, and when it changes, something's going on in the world, some strange nuclear fission has taken place that affects the neoastic roots of the bean. So we have to watch the complexion of beans. I worry about recruiters searching for color. You know, you see, they're always searching for color. Recruiters are searching for color. What's going on, poets of America? America? Americas? I worry about monolingual emergency signs. If it's a real emergency sign, it should be like in a thousand languages. You know? You gotta watch this emergency. Emergency, but it doesn't say emergencia. I worry about 
um, guys locked up so they can write. I worry about um, the dead never speaking up, you know? I, I, you know, come on now. Everybody's got to say something. I, wor- I worry about uh, 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 proms as delivery rooms. You know, it doesn't mix too well. I worry about uh, the drug traffic parked in the White House. You know, that's, that could be a problem. I worry about what I'm saying. I worry about high school cafeterias as artillery ranges. You know, it's like a place you should be eating, some taquitos. I worry about people who say, don't worry, baby. I worry about the word Mexican having an X. What's going on there? What's going, you know, like brand X? There's always this brand X and there's something else and they compare it to brand X and it's always better than brand X. So, man, I always worry. I gotta watch it. I guess that's what poetry comes from. You know, a lot of concerns, um, a lot of issues, a lot of things. So I want to thank everybody for inviting me over. I thought I'd share a little bit about uh, some of the books that I have, the little chapbooks and pancartas and uh, traveling through the Southwest and meeting Alurista and the first Chicano Literary Festival in 1973, Oscar Costa, the story of Robert from East L.A. and the revolt of the cockroach people. Elias Landino, a uh, great poet, fantastic poet, yeah, fam- famous songwriter whose work hasn't been translated into, into many languages. So and perhaps uh, the audience tonight can take that challenge on. And I shared a little bit about my journals and, and how writer is always writing, even if it doesn't look like writing. And uh, the poetry makers in your own backyard, in your front yard, in the kitchen, and in your own home, and yourselves, uh, you're the poetry makers. It's not necessarily me. It's you. And that's all there is. So, muchas gracias. And I thank you very much. Gracias. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.